Well, brothers and sisters, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and take them and turn to the book of Jude. The book of Jude, if you find Revelation, go one book back, and there you are. While you turn there, I'll say a few words of introduction. If I were to poll you today and see how many in here like stirring up tension and conflict, I wonder how many would raise their hands. Don't raise your hands. Don't you hate conflict? Don't you hate stirring an already boiling pot? It's never fun. And you might even say, is it unchristian to contend? Is that an unchristian thing to do? Well, it surely can be. As you remember, you can be like Adam in the garden who said, the woman you gave me. That doesn't work. You can do that. And in that way, it would be very unchristian. But the Scriptures tell us that we are in a great conflict. That we are the church militant, meaning we are the church who is at war. And in the midst of this conflict, it is not only on the outside that we have conflict. And there are many things which you can name culturally which come against the Christian from every side, but it's from the inside that we have conflict. Jude's particularly going to speak about the outside, but there are many ways in which each of us is called to contend as Christians. And we must learn to contend well. Jude is going to teach us how to contend. But let me pray, and I'm going to read the first four verses of Jude, and we'll jump in. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, this is Your Word. We do pray, come and open it to us, and help us see wonderful things in the Word of God. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Jude, beginning in verse 1. Jude writes, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord. Jesus Christ. Amen. The Word of the Lord. Well, brothers and sisters, as you probably guessed, I have a proposition and two points for you today. The, uh, Jude is calling us, if I call him an apostle, just now I was reading Matthew Poole this week, and he calls him an apostle, and that kind of throws me off. Jude is telling us, contend for our faith. Contend for our faith that was delivered. And contend for our faith that is under attack. 
Jude is telling us to contend for our faith that was delivered. See how Jude opens his book in verse 1. He says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Jude begins by telling us in this epistle, he's telling us who he is and who his audience is. And telling us who he is, he says his name, Jude, his Lord, the Lord Jesus, and his brother. Now when he does this, let's just open this for a moment. Uh, the, word, the, the word in Greek, Jude, is the same, uh, same word as Judas, and it's the Old Testament form of the word Judah. It was often used uh, throughout the New Testament. Jesus had two disciples who were named Judas or Jude. Two disciples, one went out into infamy, Iscariot, and the other one went out into obscurity. You never hear from him again. But the Jude here is obviously, as he says, the half-brother of James, who is recorded in Galatians chapter 2, verse 9, and is recorded in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, to be the half-brother of Jesus. Peculiarly, uh, none of the brothers of Jesus believed on Jesus during his life and ministry. It was post-resurrection. And and Jude became a believer, 1 Corinthians 15, 7, um, Acts 1, 14. You see them in the upper room praying with the disciples. But Jude, in identifying himself, does, not, does exactly what his brother does in James, when James writes his letter. When James writes his letter, he says, James, a servant of God and of Christ Jesus. And Jude does the exact same thing. When he wants to define himself for you, he tells you the first thing that I want you to know. That he is a servant. This is, the, this is basic to the Christian faith, is it not? And Romans chapter 6, verse 17 and 18, uh, the Apostle Paul tells us that everyone in this room and in this world is a servant. And in the first century, they knew what a servant was where over 30% of Rome was slaves. When you say someone is a doulos, when you say someone is a slave, you know what it is. They have a master, and they do whatever their master tells them. And Jude, he says, the first thing I want you to know about me is that I'm a slave of Jesus. Now, this peculiar that a brother would look to another brother and call himself a slave of that brother. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 24, He says, no one can serve two masters. Everyone serves a master. You in this room, you're serving a master. It would only take time to figure out who that master is, who you devote your time to, your money to, who has your affections it's not hard to tell who someone's master is. Who masters you? Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, he'll love the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Right? Scripture makes it clear that everyone on the planet is in service to another. And Jude recognizes and sees that he is a servant of Jesus. It is peculiar... Um, if you go into the Gospels, I, I bet this rang in Jude's mind. 
in Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 through 50, uh, a man comes and tells Jesus, uh, your, parent, uh, your mother and your brothers are outside. And you remember the saying. Jesus says, he says, who are my mother and who are my brothers? But the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. And I want you to know that that probably rang in Jude's mind. Because he found himself that he does not identify himself as a half-brother of Jesus. He does not say, that is my identity. He says, but I am a servant of Jesus. Why? Because those are the people who truly have relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who have been bought by His blood, as 1 Peter 1.18 says, that you are ransomed from your futile ways from your forefathers, not with perishable things as in silver or gold, but with per- the precious blood of Christ. And he says he's a brother of James. Now the James, obviously not, that was martyred in Acts 12, but the James who became a pillar in the church in Galatians 2, the half-brother of Jesus. I want you to see that he tells you who he is. He tells you those three things. He tells you his name, his Lord, his brother, but he also tells you his audience. Verse 1, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. This is an awe-inspiring way to begin a letter. It is an overwhelming way to begin a letter. He begins with saying that the ones to whom he writes in their relation to the triune God. See what he says. To those who are called. Now, you know that I'm probably where I'm going, but John 3. Who does the calling in the work of the train? Who's the main caller? It is the Spirit. Westminster Short Catechism 31. What is effectual calling? Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit whereby He convinces us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ and renewing our wills. He does persuade and enable us to believe on Jesus Christ. John 3, that the Spirit blows where He wills. And what? how, how does someone believe on the Lord Jesus? It is the Spirit who causes them to believe. That is Ezekiel 37 uh, prophesied to the breath, prophesied to the wind, prophesied to the Spirit, as uh, God says to Ezekiel, and He comes upon dry bones and they become alive. He says to those who are called, to those who have the great benefit of the work of the Spirit having come upon your life and making you new. But then He also says those who are beloved in God. And brothers, you know that you are not loved because of your loveliness. There is more sin in you than you have ever thought. But we are loved because of Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. We are loved because of the loveliness of another. That we are loved, with, it says that in love, Ephesians 1, 5, God the Father predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. You know why you're loved? It is because Christ is so lovely. He's so lovely that He can take unlovely people like me and you and make us lovely before God. It's how Jude will end this letter in verse 24. We learn that we are loved in the beloved. He's going to call them beloved in 
the beginning of verse 3. But, you know, that's the name that God gave to Jesus. Matthew 3, verse 16, at the baptism, when the Spirit descends and the Father proclaims His voice, this is my beloved Son. Why are you loved? Because Jesus is so lovely. And you could go to John 17, verse 23, and hear Jesus say that the world, when He's praying, the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. The Father loves us with the same love that He has for the Son. He says that we're called by the Spirit. We're beloved in God the Father. And then He says we're kept for Jesus Christ. And this is... You notice that you typically expect them to go, you know, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right, and keep that order. Uh, sometimes they go in reverse order. Sometimes they uh, do as they please. But Jude exclaims here that Christ is not only the foundation of our salvation. How, how did the Spirit come? Because of the work of Jesus. Why are you loved? Because of the person of Jesus. But He's also the end of your salvation. See that he says you're kept for Jesus. That is, that at the end of that, God has done everything he has done in the work of redemption, so that at the last day you might appear before him and receive the end of your salvation, which is Jesus Christ. Revelation 22, where we see his face. It is the climax of eternity, the ends for which we are saved. Christ is central. You know, if you go into the heavenly scene of Revelation 4 and 5, uh, which I've described perhaps too many times to you, but I'll describe it again. It's not burdensome for me to say these things twice. Uh, In Revelation 4 and 5, you see heaven is circular. And you see that the throne is central. And everyone is gathered around It's all around the throne. Everybody's gathering around the throne, directed towards the throne. And who is at the center of heaven's worship? It is the Lamb. And I saw a a lamb as though it had been slain. And they proclaim, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you are slain. And by your blood you did ransom a people to God from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. That they are kept for Jesus. In eternity you will see that the main person, the main work of all of redemption is for Jesus Christ and His glory. Even when Stephen is being martyred in Acts 7, he's being kept for Jesus faithful to the end. And he, pro- and he proclaims that he looks into heaven and he sees Jesus standing. Why? To receive him. Jude has been kept for him. Stephen has been kept for Jesus. We are called in time. We are beloved from eternity. We are kept for glory. What a way to start a letter. He opens with this work of the triune God. And I wonder, Christian, do you think that he's writing to you? I read these things 
wonderful things that God has done. And, and perhaps you read them and you say, is that how I really view myself? Having had the work of the Spirit, having been beloved by God for all eternity, having been being kept even this day, this moment for Jesus. That's how Jude addresses you as a Christian. It is a wonderful way. And Jude says in verse 2, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. It's a prayer. But it's a prayer that the results of the gospel would be realized in your life. Realize that mercy, peace, and love are the results and the benefits that flow to us as believers from the work and the person of Jesus. And, I, and what, what Jude does is that he's praying, as it were, that you would realize who you are in the gospel, that you would realize what Christ has done, that it might grab your heart, and that you might realize these things, the benefits of Christ to you, which is mercy, which is peace and love. The gospel would affect you in every way. Brothers, I call you to contend for our faith. Contend for our faith that was delivered and contend for our faith that is under attack. See what he says in verse 3. He says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. See how I began that? Beloved, although I was very eager. Jude proclaims his eagerness to write about a common salvation. And all the things that Jude could have written... He would have had information that perhaps was not anywhere else recorded about what it was like to be saved by his brother. To, to, to what he could have written about what it was like being raised with the Lord Christ in your home. The things that he could have put down with ink and pen. Few people would have known Jesus as Jude, humanly speaking. He could have shared wonderful things about a humble home. And particularly what he could have said about our common salvation. A salvation that transcends borders and languages and cultures and does not depend upon the recipient, but it depends wholly upon the giver. What he could have said about salvation that, as Jesus said, is truly John 19.30 finished without anything left to be done. That all that needs to be done is simply believe in Him. How he could have followed his brother's letter in James and talked about faith that is true and works out. Surely, as he picked up his pen, these were great desires, very eager to write to you about our common salvation. But he says in the latter part of verse 3, that he found it necessary 
The word for necessary is the word that can also be translated a state of distress. Trouble, calamity, pressure. It often actually occurs in reference to mortal danger. And it is as though Jude saw someone running towards a cliff and his, the distress of his soul just became so great that he had an outcry. I, a Welsh friend of mine who was one of my professors, he was pastoring in the 80s and in an area where there was a massive earthquake. And uh, a lot of people died, homes were lost, and he got to, even with the, with, with, related to the congregation, he got to church on Sunday and quickly realized that the message he had prepared was not the message that needed to be heard. And as the people were frantic and panicked and needed to hear about their troubles directly, he changed his sermon. That is much what Jude does right here. Perhaps with ink dripping off of his pen as he went to write about a common salvation. Perhaps even the amanuensis, if there was amanuensis, told him of the troubles of this congregation. All the details we do not know, but he found it necessary. The distress was heavy enough for him to change the message which he had originally planned to communicate. And see his wording. I found it necessary to do what? To write appealing to you. To contend for the faith. Jude urges us with constraining language to fight. If you're anything like me, you do not like fighting. It is not a desired place to be. But with two verses, we see a picture of something worth fighting for. In verses 1 and 2, he has told us of glorious things, and he'll tell us of, of great things about the Lord Jesus Christ throughout this letter. A treasure that is hidden in a field that you have found. A pearl of great price that has come to you, for which you have already, believers, sold everything. But for some reason... We have a spiritual lethargy that though once you would have given it all for the gospel, perhaps now you are content to sit and do nothing. And Jude, with fatherly compassion as though with a son, comes to shake him out of his lethargy. And I would to shake you as well this morning. That you might not be covered and spiritual laziness in your Christian life. We all fight for something. Everyone in this room is a contender. And you can find out what if you ask your spouse. Every one of you, me included, contends for something. The question is, what is it that you contend for? What is worth fighting for, for you? And I would beg the question that oftentimes we fight for things, especially in St. Simon's, such as comfort, 
It would be very uncomfortable to talk to that neighbor about the Lord Jesus. We fight for our reputation. Often things that honestly are, worth, are, are, are not worth our lives, we give our lives to. You should enjoy the goodness of God in gifts. You should savor the reality that God has been so kind to you and given praise. And at the same time, you should hold the things of this world loosely. As Jesus said in Luke 12, 15, He said, Take care, be watchful, and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions. Now, it's often misconstrued. Contending does not mean contentious. There are some of you who are contentious. But it doesn't. It doesn't necessitate it. You remember what Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15. He said, be ready to go to defense for the hope that is in you. Often the best contender I find to be children. I have a friend who was converted by his daughter. They, they ask questions like this. They say, Daddy, why don't you believe in Jesus? Daddy, I'm, I'm afraid you're going to hell. Mommy, why don't we go to church on the Lord's Day? Often children are the best contenders. But contending is not only done in the public square, as these references are. It's done at home. It's done in private. If you do not contend with yourself, do not think that you will contend in public. If you do not find Jesus worth fighting for in your home, do not think that you will ever do it when it actually costs. We are to be those who contend, but particularly, as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, we need to stop listening to ourselves, and we need to start talking to ourselves. Tomorrow is Monday, and many of you, I hope not you, but many Christians who worship on the Lord's Day will completely forget to whom they belong come Monday morning. Spiritual amnesia plaguing. But thankfully, though we have amnesia, our Savior has never had it. Isaiah 49.16 says that we are graven upon His hands. He says, your walls are continually before me. I cannot forget you. Though we forget Him, He does not forget us. And we have a reason to fight. In verse 4, Jude tells us, why are we to contend for this faith once for all delivered to us by Christ in the gospel? Well, verse 4, particularly, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. I want you to know that though these people are unnoticed on earth, they are known in heaven. Though you may not recognize false teachers when they are in your midst, the Lord knows them. Does Jesus not even say this very thing throughout the Gospels? Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a traitor? 
They are unknown on earth. Who is it, Lord? Is it I? Is it I? It is the one to whom I dip the bread and give it to him. But they are known by the Lord Jesus. Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus, it says, walks in the midst of the lampstands. He walks in the midst of the churches, caring for them, tending to them. And here, the Lord Jesus is telling you to have the heart that He has for the church. Jesus loves the church. Acts 20 says that He shed His precious blood for the church. And Jude uses language that most of us would, in America would consider hate speech. He says that these people, that we are to contend against them. That, we are, that they were designated for condemnation. That they are ungodly people. Jude, Jude would be thrown in prison, though, depending on the state you're in. But we're called to guard not only our faith, but to be on guard for the gospel for our brothers and sisters. Brothers, to be on guard against those who would pervert the grace of God into sensuality and license. Romans 6, 1 You say that Jesus has paid it all and so you can go live the way you want to. No, he's saying that you cannot have Jesus simply as your Savior without your despotes, your Master, your Lord. If Jesus is your Savior, then He is inevitably your Master. The old uh, ran that ran through the 70s when churches were saying He can be your Savior but not your Lord. It was straight out of Jude. That they deny the lordship of Christ and pervert it for ungodliness. Brothers, we are to be contenders. Athanasius, an early church father, um, he was exiled five times. Uh, One of which was seven years. Another one was six years. And he was once sat before the rulers of Rome in a tribunal and he was known as the, the black dwarf. He was from Ethiopia, and he was Yehi. And he stood before a tribunal of Rome. And when they questioned him, and the whole world had gone after uh, a false Christianity at this point, where uh, Arian had denied the divinity of Jesus, and, and they asked Athanasius, they said, Athanasius, the whole world is against you. What do you have to say for yourself? He said, I guess Athanasius is against the whole world. Ready to contend. Ready to defend that for which we have, have believed. Brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus has contended for you. He has shed on earth His precious blood. And as Hebrews says, you have not yet got to the point of shedding your blood. Fight for Him. He loves you. Love Him. But perhaps there are some of you who have not known of Christ contending. You have never come to Jesus. Jesus calls you this day, in this service, to die if you hear His voice. Do not harden your hearts. But the Lord Jesus has sent forth His Holy Spirit to work. And I I pray, hear this word that there is mercy for you.
There is mercy for those who have none. That there is peace for you, peace with God. Romans 5.1, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And there is love for you in the gospel. Come and see Christ contending for you. Going to the cross to take away your son, rising for your justification, ascending and interceding for you. Brothers and sisters, Christ has contended and is even this day, Romans 8, 34, contending in heaven. Come to Him, even as our assurance of pardon. Come. Come and drink from this water. And come, and He will give you life. Brothers and sisters, uh, the beginning of Jude, it should be a fun book to go through and... um, together, but let us contend for him who loves us. Let's pray.